live on Facebook. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris Holmes. I am uh, the Stembler Scholar in Residence at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. And this is the second week of our office hours Bible study, uh, virtual Bible study on the book of Job. And this morning, uh, I am joined by uh, two people. Uh, Brennan, you go ahead and go first. And then if you would introduce our esteemed guest host, that would be awesome. Thanks, Chris. Uh, my name is Brennan Breed, and I am uh, the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, uh, and I'm a theologian in residence at uh, Marietta, uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. Um, uh, right now, uh, I am uh, back at my house after spending a little bit of time uh, on a socially distanced uh, vacation, uh, so that was great. Um, uh, but I am uh, so so pleased and honored uh, to welcome my Dr. Mutter, uh, the one who uh, is... is uh, a, in a, in a way, was the midwife for my uh, dissertation. Um, there is no way I would have gotten that thing anywhere near completion had it not been for not only the generative uh, mind um, and the amazing work ethic uh, of of Carol Newsom, um, but also for her uh, uh, her uh, amazing editorial skill. Uh, I I tell this story often, but I turned in my first chapter of my dissertation. I turned in a hundred and fifty six page chapter or Monster. something like that uh, and, uh, it was awful it was so bad and uh thank goodness uh that carol took uh an inordinate amount of time uh, to help me work through and try to figure out okay so if you want to actually have this be something anyone would read uh how might you go about rewriting this entire thing um but in any event uh, uh, uh Thank you so much uh, for being here. Carol Newsom is a uh, professor of uh, emeritus at uh, Emory University and Candler School of Theology, uh, the Charles uh, Candler uh, Professor of uh, Biblical Studies. Uh, she is also uh, she has done so many things and has won so many awards. Uh, she has been honored um, with an honorary doctorate at the University of Copenhagen uh, in Denmark. Uh, she has uh, been named to many different um, uh, illustrious positions, including the president of the Society for Biblical Literature. I could go on and on. She's a fellow for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, I'll go ahead and stop myself there, but thank you for being here with us. Uh, my uh, favorite biblical scholar of all time, Dr. Carol Newsom. Thank you. Oh, gosh, how do I respond to an invitation to a, an introduction like that, except to say it's an honor to be with you two on this program. Well, thank you for lying about that. But nonetheless, um, uh, again, thank you so much for taking your precious time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, can, can I ask you, I uh, saw a uh, uh, post on Facebook um, recently where you had a, a giant stack of paper printed out and it looked like the title of a book and it looks like you have just submitted a new manuscript. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about, about what we can look forward to learning from you in the near future? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been interested for a number of years about how the understanding of the self changed in ancient Israel. And during the Second Temple period, after the, um, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile, there's some dramatic changes that happen in the way people understand themselves. And you really get the birth of what I think we would call an introspective turn. People begin to look inwards. And what I find interesting about this is, although oftentimes it's a concern about guilt or sin, um, so, you know, <laughs> Presbyterians would really understand this. Uh, but um, <laughs> what's so interesting is that that inward turn changes the nature of the relationship with God. And so rather than talking about just the mighty acts of God in the world, 
They also begin to talk about, and this is something that Chris has also addressed, the notion of transformation that happens within the individual. And that's a change in spirituality that I think we haven't really explored the roots of in the past. So it's just a modest contribution to trying to say, let's see if we can figure out where some of these things that we take is familiar spirituality. How do they originate? Where do they come from? Well, and uh, I look forward to learning from uh, Carol about for so many different reasons, but um, one of the things that Carol does amazingly well is to look at theory or science that is actually incredibly complex and difficult, and she synthesizes it and brings it into the world of biblical studies in a way that is really um, understandable. Um, as Carol says, you kind of uh, eat up this giant theory and you kind of disperse it in little nuggets uh, throughout the, uh, the, the text. Um, but what's incredibly important to me too is the way that Carol dialogues with these other sciences and discourses and philosophy, literary theory, but also tries to figure out how biblical studies can add to their discourse. Um, it's not merely a receiving relationship. So I'll really look forward to learning about these kind of theories of the self. I mean, something that's hugely important uh, in modern um, science and contemporary uh, notions of psychology. Um, and I mean, if you just think about the discourses around us about becoming an authentic self, becoming living your best life, um, figuring out who you are, um, all of these things are hugely important. I mean, think about the way that social media makes us think about kind of who we are and how we present ourselves and so on. But how are these ancient Israelites doing the same thing? Um, this also builds off of uh, earlier work um, that Carol has done, award-winning work um, on uh, Qumran, on the Dead Sea scroll community um, and the way that they organize their sense of self. Um, so uh, uh, self is symbolic space is a really um, uh, important work for me too. But today we're going to be working a bit with a book that I would highly recommend for anyone to get, um, anyone who's at all interested in biblical studies, um, written uh, uh, in a way that uh, impacted the field of biblical studies deeply, but also um, uh, is thoroughly readable by anyone. Um, and this is an amazing book, uh, The Book of Job, A Contest of Moral Imaginations. We have um, uh, offered uh, one chapter of this um, as a PDF uh, for, for reading for next week. Um, we also have a couple of articles um, from Carol uh, throughout our syllabus, which you can sign up for um, uh, on the, the link that's that's on all over our, our website. But in any event, um, so thank you so much, Carol, uh, and for, for, for coming with us. Um, and we uh, generally start our studies by asking um, our interlocutors uh, to share something about kind of some of their generative assumptions or um, hermeneutical or theological assumptions that kind of guide them as they read the Bible. Um, you've got many uh, very, very helpful ways of thinking um, about reading books um, that, that you put in throughout your work on Job. Um, but can I ask you to share a couple of your, your own generative metaphors here? Oh, <laughs> well, one of the things that I think is really important to remember is that um, with the possible exception of the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, none of the writings in the Bible, when they were composed, had any intention of becoming, quote, scripture. Hmm. That is, they were engaged responses uh, within particular contexts to um, religious, theological, social issues. Um, and so what that, what that makes available to us is even though we have given them the status of scripture in that they become something to which we turn, um, it means that we're likely to see a variety of really different uh, ideas. And therefore, when we start to read the Bible, we're reading this enormous implicit conversation. So it doesn't, it doesn't speak with one voice, 
but that allows us then to listen to the, the whole conversation and it invites us into the conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of one of the ways in which I began. The other thing that um, I, I do have a, a, a sense of this as, as social conversation and therefore I first try to listen with hospitality and only after I think I've heard, then am I in a position to push back and to critique. So I try to treat it, that relationship of reading, much as I would a conversation among the three of us. I wanna to listen to you, even if I finally perhaps wanna disagree. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. That's, so, which, which gets us to our first set of questions about the book of Job. And uh, for those who were with us last week, we, we started with the first two chapters. And the, the topic for this week is, uh, is really Job's friends. But even before we get there, one of the things that, that stood out to Brennan and I about your work is that you identify the book of Job as a polyphonic text. And um, although that might sound like something you would dance to at a disco, um, it, it's not. Uh, I had to look it up um, the first time I read your book. And so I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by Job as a polyphonic text and what okay. and why that's an important thing for us to notice as we read. The yeah, it's, we, can, we can do away with the word if you want to, at least put it aside for a moment, because really all I'm saying is if you pick up the book of Job and start reading, you're in this long ago and far away narrative world, and you start off reading this simple uh, didactic story. This is a story that wants to tell you how to think. Well, after the first couple of chapters, which you discussed last week, all of a sudden you hit this really different style in which it's elaborate poetry and the narrator has disappeared. So you don't know exactly how to get your bearings. People are saying unexpected things. They go, one speaks and another speaks and one speaks and another speaks. But if we go back and we look in the ancient world, this was a recognized way of holding an intellectual debate mm -hmm. between two alternative positions. And so what is going on when you start the story in one way and then bam, you introduce a radically different way of telling the story and it really disorients the reader and makes us listen not only to what's being said, but the significance of, oh, how we say it, the genres we use. We bring certain expectations when we, you know, if we're, if we're reading a cowboy story, we know what the expectations are. And then all of a sudden, if we're in a lyric poem, <laughs> that's something totally different. So this story is jamming those two things together and somehow the reader has got to think about how do I shift to listen right and then what do I make of this when I try to put all these different voices together at the end. And, and I think one of the things that if, you, if folks have had the chance to read the chapter that, uh, about this, that's, that's really interesting is that scholars have noticed that there are these different genres, these different sort of forms of literature in Job. And, and the historical critical method has said, well, that probably is, can best be explained by saying maybe they were added later or they're unoriginal or there's this, or there's an editorial process. But you really want to actually hold some of these, these generic differences together and say, what happens if we read these as 
intentional, that, that each, each genre sort of represents, I think you say, a, a different moral universe um, yeah. that is meant to be held in conversation with the rest of the book. Yeah. You know, the only way I could actually envision this for myself was to think, what if we stage this as kind of avant-garde theater? And you could put these all on the stage, kind of popping uh, over one another. And we would, I think, then understand how this could be seen as a complete work of art, uh, as something that we have to make sense of uh, all the tensions in it and not simply say, oh, well, that was added later. It doesn't matter. Don't have to pay attention to it. No, it's there now. We need to yeah. pay attention to the whole of it. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about, about your, your first chapter of your book on Job um, is the way that you point out that the history of uh, biblical scholarship about Job, at least critical biblical scholarship, has tended to think um, that it's kind of some big mistake or something. Like, the, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of unread something or the person who wrote the dialogues really hated the folktale or the folktale was written to try to control the dialogues or something like that. But instead, if we look at this as a big conversation in which yeah. basically like there's a, a a certain way of thinking about the world or seeing the world that's kind of summed up in a folktale. It leads you to think about the world in a certain mm -hmm. way, and that has its limits. Yep. And so when we reach the limits of a folktale, like somebody perfect's life, somebody who is perfect and is a perfectly wonderful person, their life falls apart, those kind of um, cliche sayings like, oh, it's going to get, you know, some of those start to lose their meaning. So you kind of jump to another way of thinking embodied in another kind of genre, a kind of literature. I find that to be a brilliant move because it also helps us to not think about these as mistakes or one is fighting yeah. with the other necessarily, but they're, they're trying to like offer their, their way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And so when we jump to these, um, as, as you called it, a wisdom dialogue, there's other ancient or Eastern versions of this where, where friends in the ancient world, there, there's at least uh, poems that show mm -hmm. friends sitting around discussing something terrible that's happened to one of them, trying to figure out what happened. Um, what's kind of the presumption of these wisdom dialogues? Why would people sit around and, and do this? Oh, I think that the, the, um, the ancients were curious in the same way we are about ultimate realities and the limits of what we can know. And <clears throat> they were unafraid to let um, one voice stand over against another voice. Um, and what that does for the one who is listening or reading is that we don't have anybody who jumps in and says, now this guy's right and that guy's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it makes you have to engage and you have to listen to a voice of tradition and a skeptical voice and they're evenly matched. And um, so you have to, each one kind of um, shines a light on, I liked your word limits. Each one shines a light on what the other one can't see, the limits mm. of what it can't see. And, and so what yeah. we realized that one of the reasons I, uh, I like this way of reading is, um, does come from the, uh, the person who influenced me so much, Mikhail Bakhtin. He said, no one can see the back of their own head. For that, I need somebody else standing oh. in a different position. And so that's what I think this does. They show each other the back of their heads. And we need that. Yeah. I, I don't want us to go, I don't want to take us too far asunder, but uh, again, in this chapter, I, I was really struck by the contrast between monologic thinking and dialogical thinking. And if, because I think typically uh, the church, and I would say much of contemporary American culture seems to be struck with, we just need to have 
a monologic, whether it's from the right or from the left or somewhere in between. And you invite, you, you find in Job an invitation, I think, to a different way, not, not just of, of, of arguing, but of thinking and of existing. And, and so I thought it might be helpful if you could just, again, give us the, the Reader's Digest version of, uh, of a very difficult uh, and important theorist. Yeah, and you know, uh, both what you're talking about, a monologue, you know, we know that that's somebody who feels like they can say the truth through their own voice. And it's not that that's bad necessarily, but once again, it's incomplete. It finally meets its limit. The dialogue that we were talking about, when you have one voice going over another and there's not an umpire to come in and tell you what's what, that can create new ways of seeing things, but its risk, its limit is relativism. Mm And so what you have to avoid is saying, well, it's just, you know, who knows? No, each member in a dialogue has to be passionately committed to the sense that uh, I am trying to articulate the truth as best I can, Mm -hmm. but it has a humility in which it realizes my one voice alone cannot tell the whole truth because I am only one person situated and I can see only through my own eyes. I need your eyes also so that the truth, as he says, it's not in one voice or in the other. It's in what happens as they begin to interact with respect. And some, and so it's a, it's not relativism, it's humility. Yeah. We still have to keep listening to someone who's situated differently which I think is a really important aspect of some of what we're attempting to do right now in our culture is listen to people who, whose experience may be quite different. Yeah, and to resist in some ways um, the, the temptation we have to reduce things to a really simple narrative yeah. um, or a really simple point of view. Um, simply because, I mean, well, one side of our cultural equation really is trying to reduce things to a pretty simple narrative and equation. Um, And the other side, instead of, uh, instead of reverting to that, or, I mean, you know, things make the good sound bites or good advertisements that really grab the cultural imagination are often simple. um, But that's what we're trying to resist, at least, uh, at least that's one of the things I've really appreciated about this last week is that um, it seems like, uh, advocates um, for, uh, for protest are really trying, or at least some of them are really trying to not gobble up the whole microphone or, you know, people are trying to l- listen carefully to many different people in many different social locations and so on, um, uh, realizing that, that no one has that, that full truth in and of themselves. It, I think uh, Christians would be wise to think about that in terms of theology, Bible practice, um, our own ethics. Um, yeah. But yeah. That, well, and, and in a sense, though, that's why I think the dialogue in the book of Job is so interesting, because most of us probably know we like Job better than we like the friends. And that's why I wanted to be on this particular episode, <laughs> is because I feel it's really important to listen particularly carefully to the friends because we probably don't like them that much. <laughs> yeah, and we use that, that, that claim. <laughs> yeah, that claim in Job uh, 42, right, where uh, God says, the friends didn't speak rightly and Job did. We kind of use that to bulldoze the friends yeah. or uh, as an excuse to not really care about them. Or Elihu says the friends are bad, but then we don't listen to Elihu either, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So so let's let let's talk about these friends. Um, 
and they they appear uh, right after you know the narrative prologue, and uh, at the end of the prologue, they sort of make their way in in uh, chapter two, verses eleven uh, through thirteen. And um, so, what this is our first the the first appearance of the friends, and what is significant about their appearance here, and maybe how does it stand in relationship to the much long section where they're dialoguing with one another um, back and forth with Joe? Yeah, well, I mean, they are um, first of all coming from a great distance. Um, they are doing what was expected of friends in the ancient world. Um, when someone has suffered a great loss, uh, the friends come around, form a community, and as it says in the narrative, they come to comfort and console. Hmm. Now, you have to remember that this also, every culture has certain norms or expectations about what it means to do that. Mm -hmm. And so their first uh, expression is to, they, they show how distressed they are. They throw dirt in the air and let it fall on them. That is, they are responding to uh, and mirroring back the agony that they see in their friend. And so their first gesture is one of real solidarity. And then also um, the simply sitting in his presence for seven days and seven nights in silence. Because it does appear to have been traditional that the, the sufferer is expected to be the one who speaks first. And others simply sit there in that patient solidarity. So that's their, that's their first act. Yeah. And... It, it, so it seems it seems both to be playing a cultural script, but we we would say I think it's it's not a, a injustice for us to say, and they're being pastorally sensitive by playing yep. this route. They're 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 really showing up uh, for their friend. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's where it it, it then takes a turn, right? So at yeah. the end, when the friends are in silence, they're uh, mourning along with Job, respecting him. It seems uh, Job is not necessarily acknowledging them. And then Job responds, uh, not to the friends, but responds to the events that have happened. Um, and he curses, right? So this reminds us of the, the dialogue, or the, sorry, the, the um, folktale beginning in yeah. chapters one and two, where we hear this kind of play on curse and bless. Um, but the, the whole dialogue between uh, God and the Satan is whether or not Job's gonna curse God to God's face, <laughs> right? So here he curses, and that's that real word for curse, kalal but it's the day of his birth that he curses. Yeah, uh, yeah. and you point out that, Jer that Jeremiah does this as well. So yeah. that we have yeah. at least one other example of somebody cursing the day of their birth, maybe as a way of getting at God, right? The one who kind of causes the birth of the world and everything. Mm -hmm. And that, that, so then Job jumps into his um, speech, which uh, kind of breaks open the story in a way, right? It kind of deconstructs the logic yeah. of, the, uh, uh, of the first two chapters, um, which seem to assume kind of a God's in control, uh, mm -hmm. People are supposed to respond with adoration and worship, um, but here we get something quite different. What? How do you characterize Job's speech in chapter three? Yeah, it's um, it is a plunge into the abyss. And I think one of the important things to recognize is that Job is the one who departs from the cultural expectations. I mean, in, in the ancient world, they understood people do not get over their grief and their emotional devastation in seven days. But there is an expectation, there was an expectation that at the end of this ritualized period of grieving, you 
um, you move into a different stage in which you're, you begin life again. You get up, you uh, wash your clothes, you share a meal, you have sex if you're married. Um, you know, you, you affirm life. And what Job is doing here is affirming death. He says, not just, I'd like to die, I wish I had never even been born. And so what he's doing is um, terrifying. Um, and uh, I think that we have to start with, you know, the friend's response by realizing that they thought they came for an ordinary consolation. And all of a sudden, the floor has been pulled out from all of them. Because what Job is doing is enacting a plunge into an abyss. And I don't know about you, but that's frightening. That's yeah. frightening to be in the presence of someone whose needs have just suddenly revealed themselves to be this enormous, gaping abyss. I, I feel in some ways that that's some of the uncertainty that we felt a couple months ago about COVID was the yeah. uncertainty of not knowing what, what the yeah. world's going to look like. But then also in the past two weeks, um, there's a kind of a um, restlessness, uh, even in supporters of, of the protests, right? Uh, kind of a restlessness about what's, what's this going to look like, what's actually going to happen. Um, uh, but this, uh, uh, in, <clears throat> in verse four, where it says, uh, let that day be darkness, um, commentators have pointed out that uh, that's kind of an inversion of God's creation language from Genesis 1, right? Uh, yeah. That day, let there be darkness, um, is what Job says in, in the Hebrew. Um, uh, and so that, you know, wishing that creation had never happened. And in a way, maybe because like the world is so unjust, right? Is that part of what Job is saying? I don't even know if he's gotten that far in his thinking yet. Hmm. I think what he just realizes is uh, it's just the falling, falling, falling. And I see him as kind of almost like, you know, Samson in the Temple of the Philistines. Mm -hmm. He's going to grab those pillars and make everything collapse in with his grief. Wow. It's just bottomless. And it ends and, with that word that you point out, uh, rogues or turmoil. Yeah. yeah, the very last word in the book is turmoil. And so that's what the friends, you know, because I do think they've been listening, mm -hmm. but that's what I think they hear. Hmm. This, um, this man that we thought we were going to help him through the ritualized stages of grief. Instead, what he's telling us is what he's suffering from is absolute turmoil. Hmm. Just that bottomless nothingness. Hmm. That's pastorally challenging. Yes. How do you respond to that? Right. I love, I love the image of not love, right? It's a terrifying image, but, but the language that you use of an abyss and how, yeah. how much in chapter three, the language of darkness or lack yeah. of light or um, is at play. And, and even the, the, the number of times that cursing is, is mentioned, you know, given the foreground of sort of the narrative about who's blessed and who's not and, and yeah. who's cursed and who's not just, it is, it's a dark, dark place. And I, I, you know, I wonder, um, if we could just step back, what does it say to us that our sacred tradition has room in it um, for this sort of abyss? Um, that it that it it didn't edit it out, it didn't delete it. It is a part of our tradition, uh, 
And what does that say to us pastorally or, or as, as friends or as, as caregivers uh, when, when people might find themselves in a similar uh, uh, state of abyss? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> no, I think it really is important uh, because, and, and this is, uh, as we'll see, the friends are not comfortable with that. Um, but Job's voice is the one that really um, powerfully says there is no experience so terrifying, so frightening, that it cannot be brought within the, the book of scripture and be articulated. And uh, that voice, um, it's not the final voice in the book by far, but it's never silenced. And many people have said that the divine speech is out of the whirlwind, skip over everything else that's been said and are really responding to this chapter. Wow. So I think it has a very important place and it's honored in its capacity to express that sense of absolute despair. Yeah, and the cry of despair being something that often motivates God to respond, not always in, in, in our, our sense of time, well, right? Well, um, yeah. you know, the words from the cross, yeah. Uh, are also uh, articulate a, a moment of despair. Hmm. So, yeah, it's honored. Mm -hmm. So that, um, uh, that cry of despair kind of shocks Job's friends into their mode of response. They're kind of culturally appropriate mode of response, as you yeah. point out, of consolation. And that starts this dialogue where there's kind of these three rounds, right, of the friends. So Eliphaz responds, and then Job responds to Eliphaz. And then the next friend, Bildad, comes and responds, and then Job responds to Bildad, and then Zophar responds to Job, and then Job responds to Zophar, and then the cycle starts again. We get three of these cycles, and we'll be able to, um, next week, talk about a little bit about the end of these cycles, which kind of end in disorder, but uh, Carol, feel free to jump in and give your thoughts there at some point. But we start with elephant, and when we start, things aren't disordered yet, right? It starts yeah. with this kind of appropriate, um, or at least... Eliphaz seems to think that Job's done this a lot. Uh, so can you give us a sense of what Eliphaz is doing in his, uh, in his response? What, do you, what does he want? I, you know, I, I oftentimes think about this as a script for a play, and I keep thinking, my word, Eliphaz, if I had to play Eliphaz, or if I had to be in that situation, you know, first of all, I think we'd just be, oh my God, what do I say to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for Alphaz. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, this is why it can be hard to read ancient literature is because a lot of the particular things that they're saying may sound not like, although some, some of them would be seen, sound familiar, but not all of them. So I oftentimes try to say, okay, step back just a little bit. What's the sort of thing they're trying to do? And I think Eliphaz heard Job saying, I feel like I'm falling into this infinite abyss. And so one of the things that I think Eliphaz very perceptively does is to realize this man needs some sense of structure, some sense of a bottom, something that's going to catch and hold while he's able to um, endure this is something that would give him a structure within which to shape these feelings. And so I think he keeps coming to him with, as you said, these traditional conventional things, they are 
uh, when he, yeah, he begins and he says, Job, wait a minute, don't you remember? You have also comforted people. You have been the one to hold someone who was falling. And if you think about it, um, when we fall into an abyss of grief, one of the things that I think we do is to, we'll remember, oh yes, my mother had to go through the being widowed. I remember her story. Uh, and I remember how I tried to be with her or the way people will go to support groups. Um, so they try to put their experience of their story in a community of other stories, mm -hmm. of people who have experienced something similar. And so you don't feel quite so isolated and it doesn't mean you're not still grieving, but you have a sense that I'm not so alone. And so in one sense, I think that's part of what Eliphaz is. That's his starting point, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love in your book how you uh, have a little excursus on the power of narratives. Yeah. And, and how uh, they're not just kind of uh, icing on the cake of our lives, um, things that we add to give flourish to our experiences, but in fact, they kind of structure our experiences. Uh, the narrative that we tell ourselves about our lives or our culture or our church or our country or the world um, or science, right? All these generative narratives that we have that provide us an identity, a place within a story. And that when those narratives break down, that we feel um, more than just the sadness of whatever's happened, but it's like the, um, the sense of our lives kind of collapsed, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And so what Eliphaz is doing by trying to tell some of these stories is to say, look, here's, here's where it trying to uh, reorient him, right? Yeah. And give him a sense of purpose and meaning. And it's interesting that like a lot of, a lot of Christians, like you point out, run, run to kind of critique the friends. Um, but this is actually good pastoral care to try to help remind someone, hey, your life is bigger than this. The here's, you, you do have a sense of purpose and meaning, maybe not right away. Yeah. But also this is kind of like the thing that, um, uh, other biblical scholars, Kathy O'Connor, um, a good friend uh, of yeah. all of ours here and emeritus uh, uh, professor from Columbia Seminary. Um, she's written a lot about uh, uh, trauma and, yeah. and grief and uh, the ways that narrativizing, like giving ourselves a narrative, even a, a problematic one, um, yeah. many times is a, is a way to try to kind of uh, give us a sense of, of continuity in our lives that trauma robs us of and, mm -hmm. and takes away our sense of purpose. I, it's interesting the way that that links to COVID, right? The way that that mm -hmm. disrupted so many people's narratives and our narrative about everything that made sense, right? Um, yeah. uh, but also, um, I, I, I appreciate too, the way that um, uh, for, for many Americans, especially white Americans, you know, the sense that like life makes sense, our country mm -hmm. makes sense, you know, uh, uh, I, I I can get a good job. I can get you know the kind of narrative of like a, what a good American life is or the American story. For many Americans, what's bubbling up now is the sense, hey, listen, that never was the story that made sense for us. Yeah. Um, and then it, finally, it seems like many white Americans are paying attention to the disruption that many people have felt in the United States, especially Black Americans have felt. Yeah. And you know that's the limitation of what Eliphaz is doing. We have to be very careful. <laughs> when we see someone in pain and we rush forward with the, oh, but if you just think about how this fits into the larger narrative and whatnot, um, that can quickly be a matter of trying to take care of ourselves, hmm. not the person who's in pain. Wow. That is, we're frightened of that situation and we want the, to deal with that by containing it and um, not listening. 
Mm. So, um, I mean, Eliphaz is not necessarily wrong to begin with this. He is trying to respond. But um, mm. the limitation is you quickly realize he's more invested in asserting his narratives that really everything is okay in the big picture mm. and not listening to something that may be more radical, which says, no, yeah. <laughs> it's we, really we, we, broken. Yeah, we, <laughs> it we never was it. quite that way. And mm. that requires a different kind of staying with someone and, mm. and listening. Yeah. So, so what, towards the, the end of, of Eliphaz, um, in chapter five, the speech, it seems as though um, he moves maybe more in, in the realm of asserting a narrative, um, mm -hmm. uh, even in maybe offering some advice to, to Job. And what, 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 does, what does Eliphaz's speech in chapter five sort of represent? I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, sort of he's representing traditional, you know, proverbial wisdom. Uh, there's this language of, in, in verse 17, happy is the one whom God reproves, this idea that uh, hardship is, is, is actually an indicator of God's care because it's sort of building you up or something like that. So what, how, what, does, what does Eliphaz sort of represent? Um, <laughs> In, in in this course of the dialogue. Okay. The one that you just mentioned where he says, you know, God may be doing this to make you a better person. Out of, I try to be hospitable. I try to listen with a sympathetic ear. That one, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I just think that makes God into a moral monster um, to say, you know, I mean, you're not going to kill your kid's pet to try to teach them a lesson, you know, so um, <laughs> I can't go there. But one of the things that you will notice is that the friends are all, the, their arguments are completely inconsistent with one another. Right. Okay. Uh, even within the same speech, Eliphaz will say one thing, then he say something else. This actually was not uncommon in ancient constellation. And in fact, if you mm. listen to us today, it's probably very similar. Even Cicero, when he was writing about constellation, and he said, even when I'm trying to console myself, I will throw up five or six different ways of thinking about this just to see if one of them is helpful. So that one, mm, sorry he mentioned that one. What he's mainly doing in chapter five and what the friends do throughout is they urge Job to pray. Mm -hmm. Now, I think, again, we have to think about why are they suggesting this? What are they meaning by this? Um, he says, if it were me, I would resort to God. I would lay my case before God who performs great deeds which cannot be fathomed and so on and so forth. Why do all the friends ask Job to pray? I mean, in one sense, they do not begin by blaming the victim. They will eventually get there, but they start with a much more of a, we have no idea why this might be happening to you. Could be this, could be that, could be this. And finally, we don't really know. They are very practical therapists, if you will. And their basic stance is, we don't know why this may be happening, but there's always something that you can do. Mm. One of the problems that Job has is that he feels like stuff is happening to him and he has no agency. Mm. That's been taken away from him. And what they're trying to do, I think, in inviting him to pray is say, in fact, you do have agency. 
This is something that you, you can go to God, whether it's with your suffering, whether it's with your sin, whether it's with your whatever. You can go and God will respond. So they are urging him to, and again, this is a traditional practice. And one of the things that, um, especially when, um, when Zophar issues his invitation to pray, he talks about how you prepare yourself for prayer. And basically, if you look at his words, what he's saying is you put yourself into a centered or meditative mood. And what this is doing is urging Job to, in a sense, um, uh, giving him a practice that will help him quiet the chaos within and to give him agency. So uh, once again, if you look at what they're trying to ask him to do, there's a real rationale behind it that I think we can appreciate. And in fact, um, uh, if you look at some of the, um, uh, the meditation practices that have been introduced into prisons, um, they, they are, in a sense, a way of finding a, a still space or a quiet space within which people can address the chaos of their lives. So, so I think that that's, again, one of the better things that they do. Mm. Now, there's a reason why Job, you know, will resist that, too. Right. Um, so even though all of the friends' responses, let, let's try to put this, let's try to put some narrative frame around your experience. This is not where you're going to be forever. Or let's try to find a place where you can um, find quietness even while the turmoil is still raging. Hmm. They're not bad responses, but increasingly the friends simply, they're not realizing that this is not what Job is asking for and really not what he's ready to hear. And I think where they fail him is not being able to listen to the radical pain that he's addressing. Yeah, that so sense I, that I sympathize with them, but I also, I wouldn't do it. I probably wouldn't have done any better, but <laughs> I have to admit they, they, they do fail their friend in some respects. Yeah, but, well, that, I, but that, it is important just to notice the kind of empowering nature of both narrative and mm -hmm. uh, of of prayer or of yeah. uh, you know kind of ritual practices. Um, yeah. And I've seen this in, in among protesters uh, uh, videos uh, over the past week of people engaging in kind of rituals of chanting, um, of, yes. of breathing, uh, of, of kind of call and response, but also singing. Um, that these things do center and empower people, and mm -hmm. also that sense of a narrative that we're going somewhere. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That. Yeah is basically what Eliphaz says in chapter four, verse seven, right? Yeah. You know, think now who is the innocent who ever got punished. That's not true. Eliphaz knows it's not true. Yeah. Some innocent people sometimes suffer, but over the course of, of the length of time, you know, sort of four out of five dentists agree, right? You know, it's kind yeah. of a long, it's like a, it's a, like a long, long lens. So those, I, I really appreciate that you say, let's not throw these things away. Let's just yeah. notice who are we applying them to? Are we taking note of the context, right? Of. And, you know, it matters, too, when um, someone is um, either individually or collectively in a moment of great distress. Um, it's one thing when the person suffering reaches for these, him or herself. Mm -hmm. It's another thing when a bystander urges them on that person. And so, yeah, yeah I yeah. think there's the, the ideas mm -hmm. and the perceptions may have great value, 
Right. Um, but how they're used and by whom, and that's part of the complexity of what's going on as we read these dialogues. And even though we respond, we think, well, that's, I get that. Yeah, um, the friends got real mad that it didn't work, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. You're supposed to respond to my therapy. <laughs> now, Chris, you had a question. No, about... no I was just gonna, I was gonna yeah. say, I was gonna say one, uh, Carol, I'm kind of angry right now at you because I preferred to read the three friends kind of like as the three biblical stooges. It's a lot easier <laughs> to think of them as like dumb idiots yeah. um, and insensitive friends. Yeah. Uh, and now you're complicating that for me <laughs> as hopefully you're complicating it for other people. And uh, so I just wanted to point that out. Um, but second, I, 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 as we were talking about these friends and the practice of of listening to another person in grief, I just immediately went to clinical pastoral education. Yeah, yes. what, what, what many pastors are required to do before their ordination. And it's the, it's the practice of, of going into a hospital setting of some sort and offering pastoral care um, in moments of crisis. And one of the things that we were required to do is write these verbatims where we, <laughs> we write about an encounter and then we sort of, okay, what was good about this and what was not good? And how did you, and how, how was your question or your response more about your own pain or dealing with your own ambiguity than sitting with, and, and I feel like what you've just done for us is sort of like a, you've given us that we're in group together as a pastoral, as pastoral care interns and you're helping us like, look at, oh, this is an interesting experience and what's good in it and what's bad in it and i just again the, the nuance and the complexity of that is something that i think is easily overlooked if we think either these guys are have have it all or or b they have they have nothing yeah. um you've really helped us see there is there are, there are some at least initially good responses or, or responses that we could say that's not a terrible decision um, and then, and then maybe it devolves from there. I just, I just want to hold that up and, and, and thank you for, for making this more complex. Well, I think you're absolutely spot on. I, this would be a great book to read in, um, in that, to treat it as though it were a, a verbatim. <laughs> I think mm. that would be brilliant. Wow. Yeah. And the, and also the, the sense that they are uh, using Bible. Like, I mean, yeah. they don't know the Bible, you know, it's not written yet as you, as you pointed out at the beginning, but just to say like the, the things that they're sharing sound an awful lot, like what you might see in Deuteronomy or in Proverbs, you know, the oh, yeah. fate of the wicked story, you know, yes, bad people eventually meet their end uh, and eventually are exposed. The arc of the moral universe is long. Proverbs says that and Deuteronomy mm -hmm. says that, um, and, you know, that you'll get rewarded in some way for good behavior. Um, yeah, it seems know, like... Let's go ahead. Oh, no, it just seems like the friends use these things. Um, yeah. And they're not, it's not, they're not wrong. It's just that, yeah. as you point out with your whole idea, they're wrong in context. They're, they're using, these, uh, they're using um, these stories and ideas at, the, at their limits or beyond their limits, maybe. Yeah, and I think that, I do think absolutely you're right. That In one sense, Job is kind of a critique of Deuteronomy and of Proverbs and of many of the prophets, frankly. Uh, but what's I think so interesting is that Job shares the same fundamental assumptions that the friends do. Mm. It's just the friends think the world does work. God does ensure ultimate, the, the arc of justice ultimately. And Job says, God's supposed to, Yeah, yeah. but I'm not seeing it. Right. And so, but in that sense, they are 
both agreed that on the same values, it's just, are they manifest or is there something that is uh, hidden about this, but ought to be there? Uh, Job is in one sense calling God to account to be the same God that the friends say, I experienced that. So they yeah. they are closer together than we sometimes realize. Yeah, and we can get into this more next week. But it strikes me that like Job and the the protests of Black Lives Matter seem to sit, touch on similar points, yeah. which is that like this grand narrative that we're told it might work for some people, but it's not working for us, right? Um, the police are are great protectors. Well, that actually is true for some people, but mm-hmm. it's not true for me and that 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 uh, exception yeah. is not just an exception it matters right it's and, a kind and, of and the thing is, both sides agree that it is a good thing mm. that the police should be the defenders of justice and um and, and a civil society and so yes the protesters are basically saying but that is not manifesting. That is mm-hmm. not the reality. We want it to be the reality. And Job also really wants God to be that God that he and the friends both, the job description is much the same. <laughs> ah, wow. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, it's, it reminds me of the Psalms of Lament where yeah. the, the psalmist is praying, God, be who you promised to be. Yes. Yes. You act this way. And so you're saying, Job is in, in a similar vein saying, yeah, I get it. God is supposed to be this way, but that's not my reality. And the friends are saying, no, it is reality. It is, it yeah. all works. And, and you know, this is where if you, people oftentimes think that the three dialogues all say the same thing, but they don't. There's a very clear movement and Job gets more and more radicalized. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the first uh, dialogue there, uh, Job is talking mostly about, you know, his pain, and whatnot. But um, as you get into the the second um, set of dialogues, Job has begun to say, maybe I'm wrong about the fact that, you know, somewhere this underlying reality exists. Maybe God is a monster. Maybe the world is chaos. And as the friends keep trying to reassert, no, 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 the wicked really do come to a bad end. The wicked really do come to a bad end. And it's like Job just has not been paying attention to them and has been talking about how he would really like to have a trial with God. Finally, Job, in chapter 21, he, it's like he finally realizes they keep saying this thing and it's stupid. And he says, no, actually, just look around. Who wins in this world? It's the wicked. Wow. And that's the moment at which the friends come closest to breaking with him because what they realize is uh, he has just threatened to undercut the whole notion that reality, that God's place in reality is on the side of justice. Wow. And that's where the friends start to accuse him of actual wickedness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, and, and that's what makes this a terrifying drama for the reader, is that we've been drawn into this dialogue and increasingly, I think, seeing the inadequacies of the way the friends are uh, trotting out their uh, traditional uh, sayings. And then you realize yeah, but if Job, what Job is saying is right, 
Uh, do we have we just waked up into a world that is nothing but chaos and moral monstrosity? Hmm. And uh, if we can uh, turn to chapter eight for a minute, just with yeah. Bildad, um, you know, it seems to me like Bildad, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, he's similar uh, yeah. to some of the things Eliphaz tries to lift up, but each of them seem, you know, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar seem to have their kind of focal points a little bit different. Seems like Bildad does in some ways what you uh, mentioned with Eliphaz um, uh, talking about supplication prayer, you know, in mm -hmm. verse uh, four, uh, five, yeah. you should pray. There's a little bit of a question, maybe your kids were bad. Sorry about that, you know, in uh, uh, verse <laughs> Which is four. Which is one of those horrible things. Yeah, that's that <laughs> no, bad. No, bad don't say that. <laughs> care. Uh, but he then he moves into this narrative about, look, Job, it's going to be okay for you in the end. It's going to, you know, yeah. uh, you're, you're going to, things are going to get better. But then he goes into this um, interesting uh, kind of, uh, what we might call like wisdom discourse where yeah. he uh, starts to use these figures of like kind of ancient people yeah. why don't you ask the ancients or what you know and starts to talk about water and plants and then uh, gardens and things like this um but how, how would you kind of uh, uh, sum up what what you think bildad might be saying here yeah i mean uh, he, i that he does say um you know yeah ask the generations past um study what the ancestors have searched out we are we are yesterday, we know nothing. Mm -hmm. And so this long period, it's sort of, where do we, how do we know what's real? Hmm. How do we know what's fundamentally trustworthy and what's not? And for Bildad, um, your own, our own experience is based on such a small fragment of time um, mm -hmm. that he says, you can't really make a big sweeping understanding out of just your tiny little fragment of experience. Mm -hmm. The only reliable way is to look at the long course of, of history. What do, does the layering of tradition, how do you tap the wisdom of tradition? Mm -hmm. And there's many respects in which once again, um, I admire what he's saying in mm -hmm. that, we do look at so many different ways. We look at the uh, sort of the traditional ways of doing agriculture uh, or mm -hmm. uh, of forming social community and whatnot, and we can see that they had a real wisdom. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but what Bildad is doing is, you know, again, he says that is reliable. Your own experience is not. And that made that last part might not be helpful. Right. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, and in, because that's obviously what Job is saying. Mm -hmm. he, and Job uses these, these things, can't I taste it? You know, there's nothing more radically personal than the taste on your tongue. And so what, you know, again, as the readers, we're saying, wait a minute. Um, I get what Bill Dad is saying, but yeah, he's excluding our experience from validity. That won't do. Yeah. And if you think about what tradition is actually built up, not by excluding contemporary experience, mm. but by engaging it, how does contemporary experience modify what's mm. been received in tradition? Mm. So Job, on the one hand, radicalizes, it's my experience, I absolutely know what's what because of my experience. Well, mm. turns out he's also going to be wrong. Yeah. But Bildad's wrong because he says your experience doesn't matter. Uh -huh. So we're sitting there with the task of, ah, what is the relationship between someone's very specific experience mm 
and the general picture of things. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's not a simple one. No, well, and that no. to, to me that so so clearly illustrates what we opened with, which is this idea of the poly, a polyvalent text. That, yeah, that actually our work as readers is not to side with one to the exclusion of the other, but our work as readers is to say, how do we make sense of reality in a way that honors deep personal experience mm -hmm. and also makes room for a, na a larger narrative or yeah. a history of dealings or, um, or other narratives even. Yeah. Um, because part of, part of the, the response of Bildad is to say, Job, your experience is not totalizing. No individual's experience yeah totalizing and yet he goes overboard <laughs> in saying you shouldn't attend to your experience at all or your yeah. experience is not trustworthy yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah uh, and that's why you know people especially marginalized communities um it's so important not to exclude those testimonies of individual experience hmm. uh, because in many respects the especially um yeah marginalized communities their experience has oftentimes not yet been incorporated into the the common understanding hmm. and so to exclude or to push away that hmm. experience is it's harmful not only to those whose experience has been being denied but it's harmful to the whole community because yeah. their own understanding is incomplete. And yeah. this is why, yes, that whole notion of, I need someone to see the back of my head. We need someone who is positioned differently within society to see the back of society's head. Hmm. Um, and hmm. so, yeah, um, oh, Bill, Dad, yeah. Bill Dad just, he, he doesn't get that. Yeah, and I mean, that's another reason why, I mean, it's so, um, uh, I, I find it so moving the the say her name and say his name um, uh, parts of the Black yes. Lives Matter movement where like you know you can't you know that's just there's a there's a way that many um, especially white Americans will kind of glaze over like that's yeah. just an exception but yeah. but to say the person's name over and over again Breonna Taylor uh, yeah. to say uh, Tamir Rice you know to not forget these names that these are not just little exceptions that don't matter but that experience actually is kind of radically important um, and and you know is it gives us a, a new perspective on which to kind of build larger narratives that might and make I more sense yeah that's exactly yeah what is going on in our present moment is that the received story of our community and um, how it functions and whatnot is having to confront a radically discrepant experience. Hmm. And it just will not do to say, oh, well, that's an exception. No, no, that experience has got to be incorporated into a better understanding of the whole, you know, and wow. to the specificity of the name is very important. Hmm. And just uh, to wrap it up with Zophar, uh, I mean, it seems like Zophar has a slightly different emphasis. I mean, he's repeating and throughout the dialogues repeats many things that the friends uh, say together. Um, but in chapter 11, there seems to be this, um, I mean, there's an emphasis on prayer, postures of prayer, as you uh, point out. Um, uh, but also there's this question about knowledge uh, yeah. that Zophar seems to be really interested in. And can you uh, uh, just give us a little bit of insight into why, why is he talking so much about knowing things? 
Yeah, well, uh, this was actually a very common um, motif throughout the ancient world where, you know, the mind of the gods is remote. And there's that sense of we as human beings, uh, you know, our task is to try to achieve the wisdom that we can, the understanding. But we do this with the uh, realization that we're finite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And there are dimensions of reality that transcend our capacity to understand them. And now Zophar (laughs) seems to think that despite affirming that, he actually knows what those are, right. <laughs> or he knows a lot about them. It's like a card trick, so yeah. He, he should be listening to himself a little more. Uh, but that, again, I think, uh, well taken, should move us always to that sense of humility, hmm. in which, you know, again, it fits in very nicely with uh, experience and tradition. Yes, we value what tradition can tell us. We value what experience can tell us. But we need to realize that as finite beings, we are always operating in a way in which the total and the total of reality is not accessible to us. Mm-hmm. And therefore, all that we do, I think, needs to be done with humility, with that sense of the provisional. As Bakhtin said, there's always another voice that needs to be heard. And we do that in the sense that no one, you know, apart from God, uh, has the capacity to understand, see all. And therefore, it is, um, uh, it's it's hubris for us to speak as though we did. It's provisional. Um, Of course, in this book, even God won't get the last word. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a nice uh, foreshadowing there yeah, yeah. Uh, of 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 the last couple of weeks. Yeah, wow, well, that's uh, uh, powerful words. Do you have any uh, final words, either of you, uh, kind of thinking about this week um, and thinking about Job and Job's friends? I just want to say again, Carol, thank you for uh, opening up this text. Um, I feel like I I want to go through the speeches of the friends prayerfully and see how I respond adequately and inadequately to those who are in pain around me and uh, would maybe invite people that are watching with us to, to, to think about that as well as there we're in many ways we're a nation that's hurting and hurting for a variety of reasons and so maybe there's there's a good good reason for us to listen um to these speeches to see if we can we can read them self-critically as well but thank you carol for being with us thank you it's been a pleasure yeah and uh next week we're going to be uh right back here uh, wherever here is for you uh <laughs> on zoom uh and we will be welcoming uh dr brent strawn um who is uh, now duke university be talking about uh job and job's speeches and uh, we will also be reading the chapter uh from carol newsom's book uh about Job breaking into pieces with words and being broken into pieces with words uh so i uh sticks and stones might break our bones um but they can also or they won't, yes, they will actually break our bones, right? Uh, They can. Um, In any event, uh, thank you so much again, uh, Carol, for joining us. Uh, It's always, uh, I always learn so much um, by listening to you and I look forward so much to your new book. What's the title of your new book, by the way? Uh, The Spirit Within Me. The Spirit Within Me, Uh, brilliant. Uh, All right, and if anyone uh, um, wants to get a preview of that, uh, there's a couple of uh, lectures uh, that Carol gave at kind of building up to the book. Um, One of them, the title was uh, the... Uh, it was it was the, an old television show. Do you remember that? It was like the devil did did it or the 
the, the devil, devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got a, a, an amazing lecture uh, on our uh, CTS website from that. But in any event, uh, thank you so much again, and we will see you all next week.